Morena. Kia ora tata. And welcome to those of you who join us later online. To give you a sense of where we're going today, we're going to look at faith and salvation and bread, things we may think we're quite familiar with as human beings and believers. But let's look again at faith, salvation, and even bread. It's an odd thing to call yourself bread, don't you think? What's Jesus up to when he declares that I am the bread of life? I think Jesus is a bit of an opportunist at this uh, point. The subject of bread just happened to present itself to him and he seized the moment and made a point about himself, likening himself to bread. When he compared himself to bread, he was actually speaking to a crowd which included people who just the day before had seen him multiply bread in order to feed the multitude. And so why do you think they crossed Lake Galilee pursuing Jesus to meet him yet again? What were they wanting? Bread. Not eternal life if the truth be told. And Jesus read the situation right, which is why he actually says rather cynically uh, to the crowd in our passage, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of bread. They wanted more bread. Now he's about to tell them that it's him they truly need, not another free lunch. I once, I once multiplied bread, you might be interested to know. Not the way that Jesus did, but multiplied nonetheless. And I'm going to tell you the story. And a former pastor of mine, Rob Yule, Presbyterian minister from Palmerston North, uh, will enjoy this story because this is a story from my time in the Czech Republic. And Rob spent time in the Czech Republic on the same mission base that I did. So it's lovely to have you with us today, Rob. So do you want to hear how I multiplied bread? Okay, so many of you know that I did have a kind of Christian gap year as a young man with an evangelistic Pentecostal mission crowd in the Czech Republic. And for most of that year on the mission base, I managed the kitchen, which fed 80 to 120 people daily for you, two US dollars per person per day. It wasn't fancy food. But there was always bread, and the Czechs, love their bread. In fact, they love it so much that I don't know if they still do this in the Czech Republic, but when I was, I was there, it was baked twice a day in local villages so that you could buy fresh, bouncy, warm loaves of rye bread in the morning or the afternoon, smelling wonderfully, and you knew that it had been baked only hours before. So in the small village of Kostelets nad Orlici, where um, the mission base was, I would enter some tiny grocery store, and here we go, I'm gonna practice my check, and I would say something like, Dobry den, 20 chlebu prosim. Good day, I'd like 20 loaves of bread, please. Then there was the day that we were hosting a pastor's conference and I wanted 50 loaves of bread but I ended up with 120 loaves. <laughs> how did I perform such a miracle? Here's how. 
Well, days before the conference, I placed an order for 50 loaves with the bread delivery man who would turn up in a little van and supply bread sometimes to the mission base. And I would put, and I did this, I put the right amount of cash in an envelope in a walk-in pantry behind the kitchen on the mission base so that he could collect it when he delivered the loaves. Now, he missed the next delivery day between me placing my order and the conference. So I lost all confidence that he would actually deliver 50 loaves on the day. Not wanting things to go wrong, um, I called and cancelled my order with him and then placed an order with what was called a bread factory. That's what the commercial bakers were called on the edge of town. So I placed an order with somewhere that I thought would be more reliable for 50 loaves of bread to be collected on the morning of the pastor's conference. Uh, all well and good. And the conference was due to start at lunchtime and starting with no bread could prompt a revolt among Czechs, even polite Czech pastors. So I was making sure. On the day of the conference, I went to collect those loaves in the morning from the bread factory. I thought things would be straightforward, but they weren't. This commercial baker refused to give me my 50 loaves. And with limited Czech, we couldn't figure out quite why, I realised I was going to have to return to the base and have someone from the office with better Czech call the uh, bread factory and ask, you know, what had happened. But I was loath to return without any loaves at all. By now, visions of rampaging Czech pastors has lodged itself in my mind. So I go around every little corner grocery store in the village, stripping their shelves of whatever remaining loaves they have left. Several shops later, I had 20 loaves. Not the 50 I wanted, but you know, it's going to have to do. Return to the mission base. What had I forgotten? the delivery man. He had turned up, I was told. He had delivered 50 loaves and I'd forgotten to retrieve the money from the pantry. I now have 70 loaves of bread. I, that's my first act of multiplication. But that's not where things end, of course, because we get on the phone in the office to call the bread factory on the edge of town that refused to supply us in the morning. And um, what else had I forgotten? Checks bake bread twice a day, they'd lodged our order for the afternoon, not the morning. You can't have your 50 loaves in the morning, you have to come back and have them in the afternoon. And in true post-communist Eastern European fashion, that was that. There's no arguing with them. And I was most certainly obliged to go back later in the day and purchase another 50 loaves of bread. So that is how I multiplied loaves of bread and ended up with 120 loaves when I only wanted 50. Right. Shall we get back to Jesus? to the crowd who are mostly hungry and only want another good feed and should have been on their mission base that day, they could have had a lot of bread. Jesus says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for it is on him that God the Father has set his seal. Bread does perish, I can attest to that. Five-day-old Czech bread's not as nice as three-hour-old Czech bread. Life in Christ does not perish, and that's Jesus' point. Now, the crowd know already that Jesus is in one sense from God, even though at this point in time they're still being led by their stomachs. Jesus did perform a dramatic miracle the day before, so maybe he's a prophet. They're trying to figure him out. And when Jesus speaks to them of the Father, Yahweh, the God of their ancestors, 
the crowd now musters enough spiritual interest to ask the question, what must we do to perform the works of God? Biblical commentator Craig Keener points out that that question is the equivalent of what shall we do to be saved? They're actually asking, how do we get on the right side of God? And so the crowd are beginning to see past their stomachs to give thought to their spiritual and moral standing before God. Jesus' answer to that question is interesting. He says this, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. In other words, believe in me. Put your faith in me. Don't just come to me for bread. I am your bread. Did you know we had a baker here at St. Augustine's? Pip Smith, probably doesn't want to be singled out, but in the yellow jacket, just singled her out over there, <laughs> has, has just completed a three-year apprenticeship as a professional baker. Congratulations, Pip. Well done. So Pip gets up at some ungodly hour each day while most of us are still asleep to perform the, perform the divine task of baking at Ott Patisserie in Birkenhead. She bakes many of the mouth-watering pastries that they sell. What does she most enjoy baking? Not bread, in fact, but chocolate brownie. There she is, up to her elbows in it. Thank you for supplying that photo, Pip. I think Jesus could have sold himself with a little more flair. I am the chocolate brownie of life. <laughs> it's got a nice ring to it, don't you think? So I put the question to Pip. I asked Pip what she makes of Jesus calling himself the bread of life. Why not ask a baker? Pip said, it's such a bold and grand statement. Indeed. And then she went on to note that bread would have been a daily staple in those days, just as it is today. Good point. Jesus is saying, you can't live one day without me. Pip also noted that Jesus' audience would have thought immediately of the manna that God provided in the wilderness. She knows her Bible well. Jesus' audience actually asked Jesus for a sign saying, what work are you performing? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness they're wondering if Jesus can rival Moses with his miracles. Our passage is, in fact, as Matthew said, full of parallels, allusions, contrasts to the Exodus story. Anywhere in John's Gospel where Jesus says, I am, we have to think of Yahweh, the God of Israel, because that's the very term God used to introduce himself to Moses. He said, I am who I am. And so Jesus is answering the crowd. He's more than a prophet. He's greater even than Moses. In fact, he's one with God. And that's why he answers his, their request for a sign by saying, very truly I tell you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but it, it was my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. That bread is Jesus himself. God incarnate. And so, Craig Keener writes, 
The crowd want an earthly deliverer like Moses to, to supply food and bring political freedom. Jesus seeks to turn their attention from the physical food they seek to the spiritual food he is. This is not merely like Mo Moses, the mediator of God's gift. Rather, he himself is God's gift. So perhaps this poses a challenge for you and I. What kind of Jesus are we relating to? One who performs a miracle or two? One who feeds us bread? A Jesus on call for those tricky moments in life where we might need his help? Or the source of life itself who seeks our total allegiance? So I want to suggest to us today, one of the dangers of following Jesus is the risk of wanting too little from him and offering too little of ourselves to him. Because I think half measures of Christian discipleship are messy and miss the point of faith. I think the, the point of faith is total trust, total transformation, to lose our lives in him, and that is why we must devour him. See, Jesus actually is prepared to shock and offend in order to stress how much we need him and how closely we must identify ourselves with him if we are to call ourselves his disciples and if we seek to know the Father. And so Jesus says to his audience, those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. Those are shocking words. I think that comment must have deeply offended his hearers as it still does today. Even his closest disciples were quite disturbed by it. And we need to understand this is no polite call to the communion table. Communion hasn't been instituted yet. Jesus is saying deliberately and provocatively, consume me. How do we do that? What does he mean? I suggest the way we consume Jesus is through faith. Because Jesus goes on to say, whoever comes to me will never be hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. It's through faith that we consume Christ. And in one sense, faith is all Jesus asks of us. But here is where I think we can get a little confused, especially if we've been a believer for a number of years. I think we can begin to think of faith as not particularly costly. And so we say, just believe, and there's truth in that, but we need to be careful whenever we attach the word just to believe. We need to nuance what we're saying. If by just believe, we mean that faith alone brings us into relationship with Jesus, then yes, that's absolutely true. But that word just doesn't mean that faith requires little of us. I think it demands a full surrender to Jesus and complete and utter faith and trust. And so that great Protestant doctrine by faith alone does not denote something light and easy. True Christian discipleship, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer reminded us, is costly discipleship. It requires complete surrender and obedience to Christ. Now I want to take you back for a moment to that year I had in the Czech Republic and I want to tell a much more serious story 
than the one about miraculously multiplying bread. Keener said that the question, what must we do to perform the works of God, equates to what shall we do to be saved? And I want to suggest that we can sometimes throw that word salvation around like the word faith after a number of years of being a believer. We throw it around with great familiarity and I think sometimes we forget the depth of crisis that it actually speaks to. Jesus is telling his audience that they need him more than bread, a basic staple in life, that their lives have no meaning, no hope, no end point other than death if they do not come to him. They are truly lost without him. Yet after a few years of being saved, in that Protestant evangelical sense, I think we can lose the sense of urgency in Jesus' words. In Protestant evangelical terms, I was saved at the age of four along with my twin brother when we sincerely invited Jesus into our hearts. I was baptized in the Holy Spirit at age 14. Therefore, at age 24 on that Czech mission base, I should have had every reason to feel secure in my faith-based relationship with Jesus. Why then did I distinctly feel one day that I needed to be saved? And that was in fact my precise thought. Was I confused? No, let me explain. It dawned on me that there was rather a lot of myself that I'd not entrusted to Jesus and that through some stubborn independence and some hurt that I was carrying, I had created a bit of a mess of my life that I couldn't fix. Those thoughts were triggered by a quite specific crisis in my gap year. Let me tell you about it. That Pentecostal mission organization had a strict, though sensible, rule that prohibited romantic relationships between mission team members. So for some reason, they didn't want Kiwi, American, British, and Swedish young men and women breaking the hearts of Czech and Slovak young men and women. I can't imagine why. And being the obedient young man that I was, I cheerfully broke that rule within weeks of arriving and found myself a nice Czech girlfriend. The mission team leader pulled me aside, quite rightly, having noted that fact, and told me that he would put me on the next flight home. If, if, I, if we didn't end the relationship immediately, hence my crisis. Now, lots of good Christian aunts and uncles and church folk here in New Zealand had sponsored my gap year. And so I panicked at the thought of having to tell them that I was home 10 months early for breaking the rules. And I really don't think that God is too choosy about what humbles us. In the absence of sufficient fear of God, the fear of aunts and uncles will do. (laughs) That fear prompted me to pray. And in, in prayer, I found myself quite honestly saying to God, I don't know how to change. Help me. I knew I had a rebel streak. I knew I did what I wanted. I knew I didn't always obey God. I don't know how to change. Help me. And so I saw that tendency deep within myself to live my own life rather than to align it with God. And I knew I was stuck. And I actually had the very clear thought that day, I need to be saved. Interesting thought. One that, you know, can really we don't tend to think um, as believers. We think of ourselves as saved. But 
uh, I realized there's quite a lot of me that needs salvation. I'd given my life to Jesus, but really how much had I given to Jesus? I was keeping rather a lot to myself, including Czech girlfriend. And so I needed moral transformation, sanctification. I needed deliverance from anger, actually, and, and an instinct to rebel. I needed healing from grief for losing a father. I needed a softened heart that wanted to actually obey God. Dawned on me that I was a bit of a moral, emotional, and spiritual mess. And so I did need saving in all sorts of ways. And for that to happen, I had to cry out to God for help, which I did. And for those of you who are desperate to know how the story ends, I did humble myself. God met me. That young woman and I broke up our relationship, and God did a deep work within me in the months that followed. So I want to say today to us all that the faith that Jesus speaks of, the faith that truly saves us, is a recognition of who Jesus is, followed by a desperate plea for his help and a full surrender of ourselves to him. It's the faith of a 24-year-old man begging God for mercy as it dawns on him that he needs saving from anger and a tendency towards rebellion. It's the decision to admit perhaps that you have an addiction and to say to God or a family member or a counselor or a pastor, I'm stuck, I need help. It's recognizing that your once vibrant faith is hanging on by a thread because somebody hurt you or something hurt you and you haven't been able to bring that hurt yet to God. Saving faith is that trembling step towards God asking him to heal you. It's the honest admission to yourself that your anger at church and hypocritical Christians, regardless of its validity, is now a barrier between you and God that only God can remove because you've forgotten how to forgive. It's a faith that says to Jesus, help me no longer see myself as a victim, Lord. You forgave, teach me to forgive. Saving faith, it's many things. It's different for each of us. But in every case, it is waking up to who Jesus is and a humble surrender, a full surrender to him. And so it's an act of faith to look to Jesus and say, even after 20 years of being a Christian, Lord, save me. I'm dying. Be my bread of life. That exercise of saving faith is not supposed to be occasional. I want to suggest it's not supposed to be triggered by a crisis like it was for me at age 24. It's actually supposed to happen daily, like consuming bread or rice or beans or maize or whatever your staple food is in your culture or in your corner of the planet. We're supposed to come daily to Jesus as often as we need to eat. Life in Christ is lived day to day moment by moment, in repeated acts of trust and obedience, surrender. And so Craig Keener again says that in the whole of John's theology, true coming to Jesus implies more than initial faith, for it demands perseverance. My four-year-old faith and my 14-year-old faith were not sufficient for age 24. Yesterday's faith won't do for you today. Put your trust in Jesus afresh.
consume him again. And that's why we take communion most Sundays, not just once a year or even once a month. The frequency is no accident. Communion has special significance today. As you take communion, think specifically of Jesus calling himself the bread of life and reflect on where you have need of his saving love to transform your life more deeply. Offer him anything you may be withholding from God and you will know what you're withholding because it will be disordered, unhealthy, a bit of a mess. It may be rooted in pain like my rebellion was, but it will be tripping you up, it will be tiring you. Bring it to Jesus and say, Lord, help me. I need your forgiveness, your healing, your salvation. I think it's wonderful that we have real bread for communion today, baked by Pip, thank you very much. Our newly minted professional baker. So Pip serves us in this beautiful way today. She also joins us, of course, as we all come to the bread of life together, the one who alone can save us. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, you were patient with people who thought more about their stomachs than their relationship with you, but you also challenged them to see you for who you are, the God of their salvation, their eternal life, Help us, Lord, to see you again today for who you are and to approach you with real faith and trust, inviting you into every corner of our lives, Lord, that need transformation and renewal. Save us, Lord. Feed us with your resurrection life. May your atoning flesh and blood touch every unhealed wound within us, every unsanctified part of our soul and every old way of life. We place our trust in you, Lord, and surrender our lives to you afresh. Amen.